All right, back here on the Ohioan, um, got Craig with me. And uh, Craig, you know, we've been upfront with our uh, listeners about this. We're, we're trying to tape um, these segments probably a day or two in advance. Uh, we want to make sure you get your podcast right away. Um, podcast is up online at midnight, and we reach release segments every hour from one, two, and three. So because of that, we're kind of like our, our company's early deadlines. We try to get the our stories or segments in a little bit early. So we definitely were, are aware of what happened in um, Minnesota and Columbus uh, with some police actions. We wanted to take a day because yesterday when we taped our uh, last segment, really there wasn't a lot known, especially in the incident that happened in Columbus. Uh, we heard a little bit more yesterday. So, uh, Craig, first of all, I mean, the Chauvin, I don't know. I mean, I guess how I basically feel about it. And we're apolitical for one, and two, we're not trial experts. I mean, Craig covers court cases. I've covered court in the past. We know enough to cover it, but I don't expect heavy, heavy analysis because we're not court people. If we were, we'd be lawyers. We wouldn't be journalists. But to start out, Craig, I mean, I kind of looked at that Chauvin thing where, yeah, it, it seemed pre- pretty clear cut since it was on video. I mean, I'm sure there were some arguments that the defense could have. Maybe there's some legalities the defense could use. But just the whole thing appeared pretty clear-cut based on the video that we saw and we know. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of those cases where a lot of people really believe that that, you know, video that was taken by the bystander really helped solidify the case because, it, you know, at a certain point, you know, that case could have turned out to be a, you know, a person died in police custody, but it was because of a health, you know, issue. Now, I know that the coroner's report was probably also, you know, a, another piece of damning evidence. But I think really the, the thing that really stood out was the fact that a bystander there took video and that was admitted into evidence. And that really probably solidified the prosecution's case here because, you know, when you have that direct evidence to, to show that, you know, this person's pleading for their life and this officer is on top of them, it probably really solidified that case to where there was really very little doubt. And I think when you look at a multiple week trial with 10 hours worth of deliberations, it really was pretty clear cut, I think, to the jury because, you know, I've, I've seen times where deliberation takes minutes. I've seen times where de- deliberation takes days or weeks, you know, and in this case, 10 hours did not, it, it may not, it may seem like a lot of time to some people, but really when you, when you're deliberating 10 hours after hearing all that evidence, getting all the testimony from all the people that testified both on, you know, the prosecution side and the defense side, it seemed clear cut based on the way I saw it from the perspective of the jury that they, they felt like a guilty verdict was the only verdict, you know, that was uh, reasonable after hearing everything that was involved in the case. Yeah. And, and I think, and boy, I don't remember. Um, there've been a lot of good stories by USA today and elsewhere talking about like a high school student was able to capture that video and that video I'm assuming was used in court, but really, helped the nation understand what was happening. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I don't know. Was there body cam footage available? Yeah, yeah, there was body cam video okay. that was that was submitted. There were, 
I didn't watch every second of the trial, but right. I tried to watch as much as I as much as I could. Obviously, it was you know going on during work purposes, but you know it's something he had in the background going on. But you know you had some body cam video, you had some body cam screen cap images of what you know maybe where knee placement was from Derek Chauvin on top of George Floyd. Um, you know you had quite a different you know different perspectives of different people's body cams that were in you know, involved with that, not just, you know, Derek Chauvin's, you know, viewing angle. So you got a, a robust amount of video, but I think, like I said, you know, the damning evidence I think came from the bystander video because it was pretty clear what was happening as far as, you know, the man pleading for his life, you know, whether you want to say he was resisting or not is in the eye of the beholder, I guess, but from my perspective, it didn't look like at a certain point he was really resisting anymore. And then, of course, you know, unfortunately, he, he died, you know, in that position. And, you know, I think one of the one of the big things is, you know, we kept seeing the video, too, during the trial. And I think the more that that video was played, it probably only solidified the case. And yet, that was even when the defense team was also um, – playing that video over and over again, you know, to determine maybe what he had said at a certain point, what George Floyd had said at a certain point while talking to police or what he may have may or may not have had in his mouth or something at the time. Um, so that video kept being played. And I think a lot of it, you know, was maybe too much from the defense because that just continued to kind of reiterate the point of this man was pleading for his life moments before he died. And I think it only probably strengthened the prosecution's case as that video kept being played. And we'll talk about this in a second, because here in Ohio, uh, there was a unfortunate shooting of a um, 16 year old, um, a person of color. Um, I will say before we get there, body cameras, let's use them. And I know there's a cost to it. And I know not all police departments are flush of cash, probably very few police departments are flush of cash, but what a great tool. And it's not for, anti-police crowd or pro-police crowd it's control for everybody i tell you craig if i'm a police officer right now i i, I want to buy a cam because you know there's a lot of you know you talk about complaints you talk about everything else if i got that body cam on one it should motivate me to behave better secondly though it provides protection because if i'm hailing a police call and things go south and somebody blames me i can say look got the body cam here i did what i needed to do um, and so right. I, I, so I think it's a good, and I think what frustrated me so much in a couple of the other police shootings, which, which is ridiculous that we're talking about several police shootings in Columbus in one year, right. was there wasn't body cam footage available, and I know there's cost concerns and everything else, but but let's prioritize it. I mean, we look at each each of our budgets. I, I'm sure if we displayed our budget, we'd say, oh, we don't have enough money for this. Well, if we prioritize enough, we should have money for whatever that might be in our budget. Same thing with police departments. I know police departments don't have money, but in my opinion, high up on the prior list should be body camera because it protects themselves, but it helps root out bad policing whenever it would happen. So, um, you know, we need more of that. And I, I think that was my frustration because the last time we had somebody gets shot there wasn't body cam footage available they didn't turn it on which to me is a humongous red flag 
Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, up in my coverage area for Sandusky County, that's one of the big selling points as to why our sheriff's office a few years ago went to body cameras because they want to have they want to have that evidence that, you know, because, you know, there's been times where police have been accused of something or maybe there you know been times where an officer has been alleged to have, you know, treated someone the wrong way or whatever it may be. And, you know, our sheriff in this area has said, I want the body cam video for that because I can go to the camera and see right then and there what happened. And, you know, if something bad happened, then they can address it. If something that was alleged to have happened didn't really happen, then they can address that, too, and say, look, you can exonerate someone or not exonerate someone within minutes of watching that body cam video. Um, you know, we had an incident in our in Sadusky County Jail where there was a scuffle between a, a, an inmate coming in versus a corrections deputy who was taking him to booking. And there was an area where there just wasn't camera access. And unfortunately for, you know, for that situation, no one really knew exactly what was going on. Now they had some, some camera footage from body cams from a deputy. And they also had some inmates testify as to what happened. And it did sort of exonerate, you know, the deputy, but the sheriff was saying, had there been a, a camera, you know, just a security surveillance camera there, they could have exonerated the deputy probably within minutes. But instead, they end up essentially having to recommend, you know, more training for that, you know, corrections deputy on how to handle, you know, a situation where maybe someone's being unruly or maybe someone is dead weighting their legs or things like that, just to ensure that, you know, something like that doesn't happen because the inmate, you know, ended up with a split, you know, like a split lip or whatever. And, you know, it, a camera can, you know, can hurt you and it can help you. I think it hurt, probably hurt Derek Chauvin, but it could help people that maybe, and it could be the case for the Columbus incident that we had where maybe this dep this deputy or this officer is exonerated because in the video, you can see that he shoots this, this girl who appears to be attacking a, another person. And, that's going to be the argument is, you know, well, should she have been fatally shot? We don't, you know, that's up to the Columbus police to policy because I'm not sure what their policy is, but you know, it, it's, it's not a surprise that Columbus police released that body cam video within 24 hours of the incident, because maybe they feel like in this case, the shooting was justified, albeit tragic that it was a 16 year old girl that was shot dead. Well, and let's set up really quick because maybe not everybody is aware or knows about what's happening. Um, very coincidental. I mean, I don't think anything to do with the timing of the Chauvin verdict. But about the same time as the Chauvin verdict, uh, there was a incident call in Columbus. And as Craig said, uh, police got there. It sounded like a, a very uh, a fight between a couple of high school girls uh, that was going on. Uh, police got there. They're trying to stop the fight. Um, and, and this is from police video, you know, body cam video. Uh, props to police for having body cam video because it would be a whole different conversation if they didn't turn that on. Uh, but, you know, they got there. Um, they were trying to break it up. It appeared that a girl, I mean, it looked like a knife from all indications, and she was in a swinging motion. Uh, so they shot the girl, and she died. Um it was interesting because on the video, adults were there going, what? You know, you're shooting your girl. And the police says, well, hey, she was trying to stab somebody. And it was interesting. I watched the press conference yesterday. And 
before we get there, we're taping this on Thursday morning. Our, our plan is to release this Friday morning. Understand that this could be different. It's a developing situation. So we want to be careful on how we talk about this because right. there may be things that break today that we don't know. Right. Um, but I got I got to tell you, Craig, I, Tuesday night I was upset. Um, I've adopted a girl. I've got a boy from the foster care system. So it hit home. And honestly, Craig, I've been doing this business for, I'm 46. Jeez, 25 years. This, I mean, I feel really old for saying this. But I've been in the business for 25 years. And I took a couple years off for marketing, but I've been very active in journalism the whole time. Probably the most shook I ever got from the story. Um, you know, I, we've covered stuff. We've seen awful things like 9 11 and everything. Not that I didn't care, but it didn't affect me as personally. And, right. I, and I, that's one of the reasons why we didn't talk about it yesterday, because I mean, I would have been angry. Um, after watching the press conference and everything, I, I can understand what police did, I can understand how they're following that policy. Now, let's let the facts come out before we determine if it's justified, if it's not. I understand. Right. That said, what bothers me just in general, maybe for from my faith, just or even for me as a human being, how can we make more circumstances where lethal force doesn't have to be used? Okay, uh, check out the and I'll try to put the press conference with the uh, link for our podcast. They did kind of explain why they didn't use a taser. They explained why policy goes more for the chest because there's some questions saying well why didn't you shoot in her leg you know where yeah it injures her where it stops it there was some logical reasoning oh i'll put it this way i don't know if i agree with or not i don't know it's way too early in the case i'm not gonna sit here and say they're innocent they're guilty i I don't know what justice play out we're drones we're supposed to write about we're not supposed to sit here and condemn or say people are innocent i understand where they were coming from and my wife and I were talking about this, but she was upset. She's in the same boat as I am as parents of, of kids. And I said, you know, my perception is maybe they were following policy. My initial reaction. Right. But overall, I don't know if our current system's working. So if they're following policy, they're innocent because they're following policy. But is how we're doing it work? And that's the grandiose question. And honestly, Craig, we could sit here and talk for eight hours about it and probably not have the answer. I think that's the one thing I want to track. Right. They were saying some good things in the press conference, not saying, oh, these are bad kids or anything. They were just saying, we want to understand what happened. How do we offer better solutions? Now, again, Columbus is a huge city. You're not going to have every kid come in front of you and say, hey, don't fight, don't carry around knives or whatever. But I kind of liked what they're saying. Maybe it was because of pressure, because there have been demonstrations out here for the past couple of days. And maybe they're saying, hey, we got to say something or, or the town's going to blow up. Yeah. But I'm hoping they take their actions and say, and, and it goes back to police reform. I don't think anybody logically is saying, define every police department, put the police out of business. I mean, I know people argue about that, but maybe a better response is saying, Hey, you still have to police, but how do we get and get to the root of some of these problems other than wait until the crisis call comes, you get there and you say, well, how should I do it? So, again, we're way too early. I don't want to judge it either way. I like the conversation. 
I hope it wasn't just happening because of fears of, you know, protests and, you know, extreme protests and everything else. So that's where I'm at. Right. Well, you know, a couple of thoughts. I know some people might think, well, why not just shoot someone in the leg and, and that will deter the the suspect or whoever it may be from from committing a crime or it'll 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 suffice in terms of, you know, disabling someone from doing whatever they may be doing that causes you to shoot them. It's not, I mean, it's, from when I talk to police, it's easier said than done as far as, oh, well, just shoot them in the arm if they're holding something in their arm, right? Like it's a gun or a knife or whatever, a weapon of some kind. They're, well, you got to remember too, police are taught when they fire their weapon, they're, they're taught to fire it until the threat is done, which means... You don't shoot someone in the arm to disable their arm from stabbing. You don't shoot their leg so they can't, you know, run towards you. They're they're taught to shoot to kill, and and whether or not that's what they should be taught is is up to is 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 your opinion on that. But that's how they're taught. They're taught to eliminate the threat, not to disable the threat, or hope that if they hit the arm that someone's not going to try to stab you with the other arm or shoot you with the other arm or attack you with their other arm or their, you know, whatever it may be. So I think that's, that's always a big debate. And, and again, everybody has their own opinion on this. Um, and I can understand when police tell me, well, we're, we're not, you know, that's a movie thing. You know, you, you see Tom Cruise fire off around and perfectly hit someone in the arm so they can't use their arm anymore. That's a movie thing. Not that, police aren't skilled enough to be able to take out someone's arm. It's just, if you do that, you're not guaranteed to eliminate the threat. And that's what their training and their job has essentially told them to do since they've been in the police academy is when you fire your weapon, you're firing it because you need to eliminate the threat. You need to stop the threat completely, not hope that you prevent it by shooting them in the arm or leg and then they can't do anything else because We've we've seen it before that you can get shot in the arm or whatever, and you can still fire off rounds or you can still attack or whatever it may be. So that's one of the things too, and that's that's always an easy argument. I understand that question from from a person that is sitting out there thinking, why not? Why do we have to fatally shoot everybody? You know, right. and I'm not saying we need to fatally shoot everybody, but in, when the time comes to fire your weapon, police officers aren't taught well you know, draw your gun and then aim for the leg or aim for the arm. That's it's not how it is. Well, so it, it's a, it's a big yeah. issue, but that's the way it is. That's how they, that's how they train. Well, and I think about this too. It may come out where, Hey, they did what they were told to do. Right. I mean, that's what you got to do. I mean, it stinks. I, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's gotta be difficult to go home. I mean, police officers aren't monsters. They're humans. Like all of us are. Yeah. I'm sure it's tough for them. I guess I'm kind of wondering, like I said before, even if they fall policy, I think the status quo isn't working. And my hope is, sure. and, you know, there was a, um, in the House, there's some people really trying to advance the police reform bill and everything. Well, I want that conversation to continue, not just until the headlines die down. Let's continue the conversation. Right. It's like the election. And I know it's a weird segue, but, you know, the election... Uh, you know, people support President Trump says, oh, it's rigged, it's rigged. Well, if it's rigged, if you really believe it's rigged, don't just yell about as you're hoping them to overturn the results. Why don't you try to do something about now in April? You know what I mean? 
and sit there and say, hey, if there's a problem, let's continue to look at it so we're okay two years from now. I haven't heard that conversation. Likewise with the policing, oftentimes, you know, hey, we're saying the right things in press conferences. You know, Governor DeWine made a statement yesterday. My goodness, celebrities are tweeting. And um, in the White House, the communications person made a comment for Biden on it. I mean, this is all over the place. It's great. It's good that we're having this discussion. But let's keep having the discussion weeks from now after the headlines fade. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I do that's where you'll see action. Yeah, I mean, there can be outrage over the shooting, you know, in Columbus because at the end of the day, you know, you look at the situation that's going on. We've had multiple shootings in the city over the last year. It was literally the same day, a half hour before the George Floyd uh, murder trial, uh, his, you know, his murder trial or uh, Derek Chauvin's murder trial of George Floyd. Uh, you know, the verdict was being read that, you know, Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. And it's it's very jarring when you when you take into the, all those accounts, and then also the fact that this was a 16 year old girl that was that was shot dead. So there can be outrage. I I certainly can understand why people would be outraged that a 16 year old girl is no longer alive because she was shot by a police officer. I can understand that, but oh, yeah. we also have to understand too that from what the video shows. And like I said, we still have other, we still need to hear from everybody. There were people there witnessing this incident. We can hear from the person who was allegedly in this involved in this fight with the girl that's, you know, started this, you know, essentially started this call. And, you know, it, it may come out that this shooting was justified, but that doesn't mean people still can't be outraged that, you know, this, this girl was shot dead because it's, it's very jarring when a 16-year-old is shot by a police officer. And people should be, you know, asking questions. I'm not, yeah. you know, I think everybody should be asking questions. And, you know, it's up to, you know, the, the, the police to investigate and determine what the shooting was, what, what caused this shooting, what led to this incident. Well, and he, again, change the policies, demand to change the policy, and keep that push up even after the outrage of this dies down. And, and and that's where it gets tough because right now, hey, I work down in Columbus. Believe me, we'll write about it if someone's uh, you know upset right now because we're looking for stories because that's a much talked about story. We want to tell that story. My hope is, and I'm not just calling out people involved in this shooting. What I'm saying is the anger... If you want to change the policy, and I think changing the policy might be a not bad idea, just keep that discussion going. You know, you, Craig, you've never been in the news long enough where oftentimes we'll write something. People who either get ticked, not necessarily at us, but the situation. Right. Well, after we stop writing about it, they're like, oh, well, you know, we'll wait till the next time it happens. Because if you wait till the next time it happens, it's going to happen. And I'm not pointing the finger at Columbus. Maybe it's Fremont next time. Maybe it's Canton, Akron, right. Cincinnati, one of the other cities. So it's that. Well, that's what we think. And again, we're trying to be careful here uh, because we don't know what's going on. I mean, we're kind of giving you an idea of what we know as of now. Yeah, we're still going to talk about it. Um, but again, it's still um, who knows what's going to happen. And, you know, we got to trust it's an independent uh, group that's investigating. 
Uh, the interim police chief of Columbus and Columbus mayor said, hey, we're going to abide by this. So if the independent investigation says, hey, they're wrong, and they might be wrong on how to handle it. Maybe they didn't follow the policy right. perfectly. Right. Well, and, and they're going to say, hey, the Columbus like, okay, we'll abide by whatever you say. And I think that's what we have to look at, too. But again, if you're upset, check that current policy and say, hey, maybe we need to make some changes. Absolutely. Now, honestly, from the talk of the Columbus Police Department yesterday, I think they're already talking that way. So hopefully it's not sure. just words in a press conference. It goes into action. All right. Well, thanks for checking out the Highland. A little longer segment, but I, I think it's good because obviously it's a, a real big issue. So, all right. We'll be back soon with another segment. Thanks for checking us out. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Ohioan Podcast. This is Craig Schaub. I am with you today uh, for a Ohioan Weekend Review. Uh, this week, we have a couple of HBO shows. Uh, they probably couldn't be any different than uh, you could imagine. And then also, I'm going to take a, a little bit of a uh, step back and review uh, one of a, a, a free movie that you can watch uh, on, for during one of our new segments called Free Streams. But first, I'm going to get into the very entertaining and very engrossing drama called Beartown. Now, this was a, uh, a Nordic uh, HBO Europe show from the uh, it tells the story of a, of, a, of a retired hockey player from the National Hockey League coming back to sort of his hometown to try to restore uh, what he believes is going to be the men's program. Uh, that uh, the professional team that has really struggled to uh, connect and and be relevant. But uh, as he gets there, he notices the uh, junior team, which teams are usually broken up into uh, the men's league, and then you have junior teams. These are players that would normally either go on to play professional hockey, get drafted in the NHL, or, of course, play maybe for their men's leagues teams uh, professionally in the Swedish elite leagues. Um, but, but basically what this show – depicts is uh, this man, this coach, Ulf Stenberg, uh, plays Peter Anderson, a retired NHL player looking to come back and restore some uh, hope in his town. Uh, but as he gets there, he notices the the younger kids seem to have the development that he would like to try to get into and coach them to uh, maybe inspire them to become the next great NHL players. So he decides that instead of taking the professional men's job, he's going to take the junior league job and start a, a little bit of a collision course with him and some of the townsfolks, also some of the leadership there that's in charge of the hockey program in uh, in Beartown. So Anderson moves his family back, back to his hometown. Things are going pretty well. The team is consistently improving, but unfortunately a tragedy, a tragic, tragic incident happens. Uh, it does involve sexual assault. So for those uh, of you who may you know, have some trigger issues. Uh, maybe this isn't the show for you, but uh, doesn't really depict uh, nudity or anything like that, but uh, it does depict sexual assault on this show. But one of the things that this five-episode miniseries does is it gives us sort of a, a encapsulation of this life in this small town. Be, you know, obviously being the, the former NHL player coming back to his hometown to try to restore the hockey program there, you know, Peter Anderson has a lot on the line. He has uh, some young, really good young players, um, one one of which is uh, expected to be a high NHL pick or at least potentially to be in, in, in the NHL. And 
for me, uh, this this show really rings very true on the ice with the hockey drama that's going on. But then when you mix in sort of the um, incident with the sexual assault, which does involve Peter Anderson's daughter, um, who was assaulted by one of the players, it really shifts tonally to from more of a sports drama to just a human drama. And I think it really does an excellent, excellent job of sort of depicting how a small town can be torn when an incident like this happens and you have allegations that are thrown out with, with people not having any knowledge uh, as to what happened aside from the two people involved in the incident. So you've got people jockeying on each side to try to understand better if they should maybe side with the young woman who's you know making these accusations or you know how can you make these accusations so close to championship games against the best player and I really like what uh, the coach did in this situation. His daughter was assaulted and he just took everything and threw it aside because he knew and he wanted to make sure that he was there for his daughter. But there were times where he questioned himself and questioned whether or not what was being said was true. And it really does, you know, come full circle in this five episode arc. It's a terrific, terrific entertainment. Now, I will caution, there are subtitles. So for you, those of you who do not want to read subtitles, this is a native, you know, it's a native Swedish show. It's not necessarily dubbed or anything like that. Although it did get a run on on HBO on Monday nights, uh, starting last, uh, just a couple of months ago in February. But it's a very interesting drama well acted from a cast that was relatively unknown to me anyway. And uh, I would definitely have to recommend watching Bear Town. Um, again, you know, for those of you who have triggers with sexual assault, you may want to avoid uh, this uh, series. But uh, anybody looking at an interesting hockey drama along with just a human interest drama, Bear Town really delivers for me. And for that reason, I am giving Bear Town three and a half out of four stars. Um, it is a terrific, terrific drama. Uh, HBO Europe should be very pleased with uh, with what they brought to the table here with this five-episode arc. Now, sticking with HBO, I've gone uh, to HBO Max this time around, um, and this is a, a very completely different show uh, compared to what we saw with Beartown. It is a 12-episode arc of Baketopia. Now, last year I reviewed Craftopia, which was a uh, show, basically a, a you know a reality drama show where young kids would go up against each other uh, to try to come up with a great craft. This time around, they they take it to the baking side and bring in adults. Uh, Rosanna Pansino is tasked with hosting this show. I think she does a great job. It's a really fun show where we get to see really interesting, talented artists kind of come together and make these, you know, baked creations, whether it be, um, you know, cakes or cupcakes or truffles, things like that. And it really is just an exciting and fun and energetic show. It's very much done like Craftopia, where they have a big sort of kitchen in the background where you can go and or a shopping area where you can go and find all the supplies that you could ever think of. Um, and one of the things I really don't like is the show definitely tried to capitalize on trends, whether it's, um, you know, the space, you know, space baking where they have uh, sort of the frosting that looks like it's out, out in outer space or a cosmic bake, you know, a cosmic challenge. They really were able to utilize some fun and intricate ways to try to, you know, 
take advantage of what's going on in society. What maybe you might see if you watch TikTok or, you know, baking shows on YouTube or on Facebook where you're looking at how to maybe, you know, basically develop a new recipe that uh, is kind of trending around the world. And they really did that with this 12 episode arc. It was a lot of fun to watch. It's not necessarily something you're going to need. You would have to sit intently and watch, but just watching some of these artists create animals out of cakes and, you know, carving out the rice cereal treats to, to make it look like a specific animal, just a really unique and fun show that if you have HBO max, and you're looking for something that, you know, maybe you would see on the Food Network shows and things like that. This is kind of one of those shows where, um, and I've always said this too about streaming services, I'd really love to see more streaming services have more cooking competitions because I think they'd really benefit in a lot of ways, uh, you know, trying to bring in new audiences. And I think HBO Max kind of understood that. And that's why you had Craftopia this year. You have Baketopia uh, right now, and I'm assuming that we'll have more and more seasons of these two uh, competition shows because they are very fun, and I'd really love to see HBO Max capitalize on uh, cooking as well, like they did with uh, the Selena Gomez, Selena and Chef show in which she was uh, tasked with learning to cook essentially during the pandemic. I think it'd be great for HBO Max to kind of cap it, you know, tap into that market and maybe uh, help them, you know, get a few more subscribers that way if they have those cooking shows, uh, much like you would see maybe on Discovery Plus with their partnership uh, that they have, of course, with the Food Network. So Bigtopia, one of those shows where you don't necessarily have to be fully invested to kind of get what's going on. You can maybe do a few things or, you know, maybe get on the computer and, and look up a few things or check your email, check your text messages, play a, a game on your phone while you watch it because you can always come back to it uh, when something interesting maybe is, uh, is said. But uh, overall, it kept my attention. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I would definitely – really be interested in a second season of Baketopia, much like I would be with Craftopia. And uh, much like with Craftopia, I am giving three stars out of four uh, for Baketopia, the uh, competition reality show on HBO Max. Like, once again, you can stream that on HBO Max and HBO Max alone. It's not on the HBO uh, brand of programming, so you won't be able to see that unless they have a preview weekend or something uh, where they have put some HBO Max shows on HBO. But uh, otherwise, if you do have an HBO Max subscription, it's definitely fun for the whole family. So once again, Bigtopia, three stars out of four. Now, one of the things that I'd really like to do, uh, obviously, I have various streaming services that you pay for. But, you know, we talked a little bit prior to the, you know, last week's show about some of the services out there that are free. Now, unfortunately, when you talk about free services, you're often going to have advertisements during movies and shows. And there are some people that I understand just do not want to deal with, and that's fine. But the, the great thing about the free services, and this is our segment, Free Streams, is that there are a lot of really good movies and TV shows that you can find for free, whether it's on IMDb TV or Pluto TV or Roku channel or Tubi TV. There are a lot of various options for people who maybe are penny pinching while still cord cutting from, from uh, whether it be satellite or cable TV, and they still just can't afford to have multiple streaming services, or maybe they can only have one. But I tell you what, 
Roku channel right now has a one of my all-time favorite as a kid movies that really still holds up in a fun and entertaining way, and that is the action movie Dick Tracy. Now, for a lot of people, you know, you may not really care too much for the Dick Tracy franchise. Um, it was a comic strip, obviously very popular. I grew up on uh, the, the little toys that you could get of Dick Tracy, and I used to I remember being sick one day and playing with the Dick Tracy toys at my grandmother's house, and it was a fun experience. And I sort of fell in love with the world that Dick Tracy um, really kind of created. Now, when you think about that turning into a movie, doesn't always seem like it would be something that could work. You know, some you know Dick Tracy is a really over the top beautifully drawn comic strip, but it's also a very challenging one because you've got a lot of hair and makeup issues and a lot of facial prosthetics that you have to deal with. But I really think that Warren Beatty, who in, in a lot of ways, I think just encapsulated what Dick Tracy would look like on screen. If you ever, th if you ever thought of Dick Tracy as a screen character, Warren Beatty was the perfect choice. He obviously directed the film as well, uh, but obviously this movie got made primarily because he was the star. He was the guy at the time in 1990, and Warren Beatty just encapsulates this this Dick Tracy role, this detective that's, uh, you know, he wears the bright yellow coat and the bright yellow hat, but he's always on the hunt for, a, you know, for the bad guys. And, you know, it's kind of like a, a comic book superhero movie, but it's grounded in somewhat reality because he's just a police detective. He's not, you know, he doesn't fly through the air. He doesn't have adamantium claws like Wolverine. He's just a normal kind of guy with a great right hand, obviously. Um, but one of the things that Beatty does, I think, really well in this film is he allows for the the, the city to come to life. He allows for this uh, battle between he and big boy Caprice to really be focused in, in sort of a grounded reality while all these actors like Al Pacino, who um, looks almost unrecognizable at times as big boy Caprice, uh, but they do great jobs with the set decoration. They could do uh, terrific jobs with the costuming and all the performances. It's it's not necessarily an over the top tongue in cheek, wink, wink, but in some ways it is. It's kind of that, you know, that 50s detective almost, if you will, where it's a little bit over the top. The dialogue's kind of fun and it's a little bit dated, but great direction, art direction for this film, great makeup, great use of makeup, art direction, and hair. And it won, it won those two Oscars for art direction and best makeup, also won for best music original song uh, from Stephen Sondheim's Sooner or Later, I Always Get My Man, uh, but also nominated. This is one of those rare kind of superhero movies that cut through some of the politics of Hollywood. Uh, Al Pacino was uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography. Not a surprise there because it was a beautiful film. Costume design also and Best Sound. Uh, but again, this is one of those aesthetically pleasing movies, one of those movies that really more so than the dialogue or even the action. It's just the look of the film. It's the costuming. It's the prosthetics. It's unrecognizable actors in certain roles. It made you really feel like you were going back into the comic strip and, and you know, hanging out with Dick Tracy and Big Boy Caprice's gang. And, you know, having watched it recently, and like I said, you can stream this right now in Roku channel for free. Um, it's well worth the waiting around for a few commercials here and there uh, because it is uh, just a fantastic little action film. But mostly it's that noir detective over the top fun 
you know, good versus evil is essentially what it comes down to in a film like this. And Dick Tracy, for me, scores extremely high, even, you know, after it came out in 1990, even years later, it still holds up for me as just a fun, over-the-top, beautifully shot, well-drawn film. And for me, that's why Dick Tracy earns a four out of four stars. So once again, you can watch Dick Tracy on the Roku channel. And then also going back, you can see Baketopia on HBO Max along with Beartown. So uh, once again, this is Craig Shop from the Ohioan Podcast, and we will be back with more reviews next week. See you later. All right, welcome to Abbreviated Steelers Show. Hey, we're going into the draft, lots of draft stuff, but I'll be honest, Joe, Paul, and I, we have been traveling around the country going to pro days, and, you know, we know who the Steelers want. We really haven't broken down all the college prospects. So we're doing some short shows going into the draft, and after draft, it will, they'll be longer. Obviously, the week after draft, we'll break down everything. But I've got Paul and I've got Joe. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Good. Doing all right today. Uh, excited to talk about some Steelers, even though yeah. there's not a whole lot to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, definitely a short show. Um, let's do it like this. Uh, there's four notes, and maybe we can uh, – and I, I guess the interesting things about these is how they affect the draft. In and of itself, nothing is super exciting, but – or maybe we could take them one at a time and see how they impact the draft. It's all different positions. So um, this week, I uh, came out this morning, uh, Big Al of Villanueva um, is going to be visiting with the Ravens this week. It's a visit. Doesn't mean anything. But, you know, the Steelers haven't done anything yet. Uh, we talked about a report a week or two ago where they said, hey, don't put your house on the market yet. And I think our guess and what probably would happen would be you know, maybe the Steelers will wait until after draft to see what tackle they get. Can they start him? Where they feel they're at? And obviously, yeah, Villanueva could do what he wants. He doesn't have to wait in the Steelers. The Ravens just talked that they're going to trade Orlando Brown. Uh, he's requested a trade. And the other tackle, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he's supposedly injured. So the Ravens could have a whole tackle. They brought Villanueva in. Um, should that impact anything, Joe? Or is that? Uh, impact anything for the Steelers? I don't well, think so. Not at this phase. Like you said, it's just it's a visit, you know, right. and and that's fine. And and several Steelers have visited the Ravens and turned around and driven right back west and uh, said, yeah, no thanks, and have come back. And several of them on on deals that are financially more viable for the Steelers. Uh, I think it's a it's a tough year to be out there with a with the salary cap you know, brought it rained in a little bit and that's true across the board for everybody. So there's a number of guys who I think just aren't, are, are hoping for bigger deals uh, elsewhere and aren't finding them and find their way back to Pittsburgh. Uh, that's just happening a lot this off season. So I, I, I'm feeling strongly that I think we'll see him back with the Steelers next year. But like you say, it's going to be an after the draft kind of, um, once we've solved all of the other problems, then we'll see where we're at. All right. Very good. Um, and Paul, I'm getting a question from a guest that's coming up later. Uh, so if you guys cut me out real quick here. Um, I was also curious about the Villanueva thing. I don't, I think Villanueva's play has regressed. 
I think they're okay with or without him, but they don't really have veterans, and you know they might need to draft a center and a tackle really early. Um, may, the Steelers may have already done this, but do you think maybe the Steelers could just say, "Hey, here's a minimum contract. Can you take it?" Uh, you think they've had that talk? I'm sure they have. Um, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think he's one of those guys who's dependent more on his reputation than his current output. Uh, so I, if he goes, it, it's not a huge loss. Obviously, to have an established veteran is better than uh, starting a rookie. Uh, but, yeah, I think he's maybe hoping for some more money. Probably won't find it. With Baltimore, a good chance he ends up coming back here. I'm sure we've put something on the table for him. Um, that would make life a little easier, at least for now. Um, you know, a, a B-minus tackle is still better than rolling the dice on a rookie. So I'm sure there's something out there, and I'm sure he wants to see if Baltimore can top it. It's always helpful to have somebody who's got uh, a little bit of experience with our sure. system and uh, yep. coaches who understand who he is and how best to use him uh, could always be a valuable asset for the Steelers. So I hope he comes back. Um, but like you said, it's <clears throat> we've we've had bigger losses uh, due to the the uh, the tightened budget this year than we will with Vill Villanueva. Very good and kind of surprising news. Um, you know, Vince Williams, um, the Steelers didn't um, resign him. The money was a little bit too high. They had to kind of get under the cap. So they re released Vince Williams. Some talk they might come back, and, man, he came back, and he's coming back on minimum contract. What do you guys want you guys to talk back and forth on? Is that good he's coming back? And the other question I have is, you know, we're assuming Devin Bush is going to be back and healthy at the start of the year. Who would you start beside Bush now? Would you start Spillane or Williams? And then on top of that, should the Steelers look for an inside linebacker at all in the draft? Joe, you want to start? I think much in the same much in the same way, having a guy back who understands the system and who the coaches know how to use is super valuable. Um, I think he's probably a better option than Spillane opposite Bush. I think Williams would come in as the starter with Spillane uh, coming in to relieve. Um, yeah, I, I just he's a he's a he's a solid uh, linebacker, and I think he's he's a great addition to the team. I'm so glad that he's able to come back because you don't want to you don't want to be in a position where you're swapping out half of every single position. You know, you know, where where one of the inside linebackers is is a is a key guy, and the other guy is somebody who you know has to has to get up to speed. Um, so glad to see that he's back. Uh, I don't know about the draft. What do you feel about the draft, Paul? You think we still need another inside linebacker? Um, I think we do, but I don't think it's as urgent with Vince coming back. Um, I. I think Spillane is a serviceable backup. I don't feel good about him being the every week starter. Uh, so I would definitely choose Williams over him. Uh, but I think inevitably uh, we saw last year what happens without depth at the linebacker spot. So I wouldn't be That's surprised true. if, if there's a middle linebacker in there at some point, 
but it's not and as if, big of a, a crisis. And at that point, really, even if one doesn't present himself in the middle of the draft or even toward the end of the draft where you don't have a, a pick that you feel really solid about, I think there's enough serviceable inside linebacker guys who are out there um, where it might be somebody able to pick up somebody on a one-year deal. Uh, like I said, there's just roster cuts all over the place, and uh, there's a lot of really solid inside linebackers who are just who are just around who definitely can contribute still. And uh, it may be easy enough to pick up one of those guys uh, rather than using a draft pick on another inside linebacker. Yeah, I think with the needs that we have right now, um, it's not a red alert situation. Like we have to have uh, a linebacker in the draft. Like you said, there's there's options to have a solid person in place there. You may not have you may not have a superstar, but a solid person in that role. Well, another person that I think is kind of interesting for me when that's on our list to talk about here today is uh, the re-signing of Josh Dobbs, um, which I find I to find strange. I would, you know, we need one. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't, I'm unclear as to what how that works for us. I don't know if it's, you know, he was, okay. it's, right. it's a price point that was, that was uh, good for the Steelers, but it's yeah, I, I'm back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I apologize. We have a guest no, that's coming up in about an hour or so. And she had some questions about how our podcast worked and we took care of it and she's good. So we look forward to seeing her in a little bit. Uh, but in terms of Josh Dobbs, yeah, Josh Dobbs isn't your franchise quarterback. Uh, Josh Dobbs isn't going to be a humongous deal. Why I think this is kind of important, though, is I think it tells you that the Steelers aren't really looking for a quarterback in the draft. I'll tell you why. Yep. In the room now, you've got Big Ben, you've got Mason Rudolph, you've got Dwayne Haskins, and then now you've got Josh Dobbs. These guys are signed. Now, that doesn't guarantee they all That is a full players. room. That's right. a full room right there. Well, and if you think about look at the NFL. I mean, you, you could have 40 quarterbacks in the roster, but typically what happens is you dress two, and then your third guy is on your taxi squad or practice squad. Now, you can put more than two guys on your practice squad. Maybe the Steelers would do that if there's expanded practice squad. But the fact that they got Dobbs makes me think that between Big Ben, and yeah, obviously Big Ben's going to be with the team this year, but between Big Ben, Mason, Dwayne Haskins, and Josh Dobbs, maybe one of those guys don't make the team. And, you know, we haven't had a chance to see Dwayne Haskins practice, but I think that puts a little bit of a fire under Dwayne Haskins' butt because if he doesn't produce, he may not be there. So, you know, if they didn't bring Dobbs back, you would have to draft the quarterback to say, hey, you know, maybe we have to do that. But I, I think this is telling you, Pittsburgh's probably not going to get a quarterback in the draft unless somebody really falls even the first round or later in the draft with like, oh, my gosh, like Kyle Trask is available in the fifth round. We need to draft him because he fell really far. But it does it, it takes away the, the focus to say, dang, we need to get a quarterback. Well, like that's currently in the running back room where you're like, crap, we need to draft a running back. <laughs> Got a lot uh, of empty seats in that running back room. Right. Well, it's the same thing about Vince Williams. I mean, I don't think – I have some issues with Vince Williams' game. I love the guy's leadership. The guy's fun. The guy's a tough Steelers linebacker. 
I appreciate that. Vince doesn't cover the running backs and Titans coming out of the flat as well. And honestly, NFL 2021, you almost got to be fast. Um, and, you know, last year when he played with Devin Bush, Devin Bush was fast. He covered that. But then when Devin Bush got hurt for the year, you had two slower guys in Williams and Spillane, and that's where things started to go haywire a little bit more in the defense. So I'm glad he's back. I'm glad he's back at a million dollars. Let's Vince Williams is a spectacular linebacker. Let's just say that. But I'd rather have Vince Williams because if we didn't have Vince Williams, now we're talking, man, do we go inside linebacker in the first round or second or third round? It just gives us a little bit more cushion there. Now, I'm hearing Vince Williams might want to be a coach in the year. So I think you only got one year of Vince Williams. So in essence, you're kicking the can down the curb. So next year at this time, we'll probably be like, hey, we need inside linebacker. Because now we don't have Vince Williams because he probably will retire, from what people say. But I think this is good because, look, a couple weeks ago we were talking, and, man, we're like, dang, there's six different draft needs. We need more picks to do that. Now, we still have needs. Vince Williams is going to make us a 16-0 team, but we don't have as many needs as we had in the past. And, and again, that's the thing with Josh Dobbs. Hey, if Josh Dobbs has to regularly play for the Steelers this year, it's not going to be a good season. I think Josh Dobbs, if nothing else, just tells you a message saying, hey, you know, we're not drafting Mac Jones in the first round or anything else. And now, I, I think the only way they would make a change is if, like, let's say Justin Fields falls to 24. And you, that's not going to happen. Justin Fields probably will fall past 10 at the very worst. I don't think Mac Jones will either, but <laughs> – but, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see on that. I also think, I, just as we were talking about it here, and I was thinking a little bit more, like it's probably a decent idea to have just a little bit of extra quarterback insurance, because really, frankly, at any moment, Ben could go down. Right. Um, you know, we have him on. We have him back for. We've rented him for another year, uh, but it, it really could just one one rough play. And we're back into his elbows and, and shoulders and, you know, bad back or a concussion or anything because he still doesn't uh, take care of himself that, that well. He's throwing his body around like he's a 25-year-old. Uh, so it's probably also reasonable to carry another quarterback just for that extra level of insurance because of the way Ben plays. Right. But probably you're not going more than three of your team. Probably. Yeah. Now, again, you might have. Well, you also work. never know when a Cleveland Brown is going to club your quarterback over yes. the head with a with a helmet again. <laughs> Very true. Never so, know. Um, and we talked about James Conner. I mean, there wasn't much to talk about. Uh, did you guys mention him? Sorry, yeah. I was, we didn't mention him yet. No, we, we no. were just getting around to that. So part of the deal with having a extra empty running back room is that James Conner did sign to the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, so he's gonna he is out of town. Uh, which I think really only solidifies, as we were talking about saying that the Browns, that's just Browns, who cares about the Browns? That uh, uh, the Steelers don't, aren't going to want to be looking for a quarterback this draft. I think they're extra committed now that Connor has signed elsewhere that they really do need to make a marquee uh, running back draft. Like they, they really have to come away with a running back. They would also need to come away with a good lineman but they absolutely need to make a splash with running backs. I saw a ridiculous stat. It was like 11 of the top 100 prospects in the draft are offensive tackle. So, yeah, you, you, I, I wouldn't be horrifyingly disappointed if they go tackle first round. 
But me neither. But I think there's tackles you could get in the third round. Yes. Honestly, I, I like, you know, center running back tackle or running back center tackle as the the mm-hmm. draft order. And, I, I mean, you need it. And, you know, like I was telling Paul before I had to take care of that thing, offer Big Al a minimum contract. Say, man, we wouldn't mind having you back in the room. And then that way, if we don't get guys, I mean, hey, I think the only thing that scares me is, man, we don't not only need to draft a running back, center, and tackle. We want to pick just guys that are worthy to start. I mean, you know, you you want guys that can come and start right away, and that that's where this could be a little bit tricky for a Steelers. So, I mean, if if one of the top three running backs is available at twenty four, and we roll out a big fatty instead of one of those three, I, I might throw things. Um, but if those three guys are gone, then I'm okay with the, the lineman at 24. Yeah. And, and we'll see. I mean, well, I, well, looking at the teams that are up there, how many of them are going to choose a running back over some of the other things that are out there? I mean, yeah, because there's going to be several quarterbacks that are needed, especially at the top. Uh, and then there's a lot of good wide receivers. There's a lot of the, and those linemen that are out there. Uh, you know, I, there's a solid possibility that at least one of those three running backs are going to be available. Well, uh, I, I think I think that's reasonable to expect that that'll happen. And I've heard a, a billion different opinions on that. Some people say, "Man, running backs haven't gone the first round." Period, and that is true. And I saw another podcast that kind of went team by team. And said they're not going to pick a running back because of this. You never know. I mean, there's a lot of teams, Steelers included, and say, "Hey, we're going to pick the best guy available, and we're not going to just sit there and say, oh, we need a tight end, so we'll pick a tight end no matter what.' They may pick the best guy, so we're not going to know. I'll be honest. Uh, we need to talk later about how we're going to handle our podcast on draft night and moving forward. But I'll tell you, however we're handling draft night, I'm going to be watching. Freaked out to make sure that all three running backs aren't gone by 23. I don't think they will be. It's possible all three will be there at 23. I mean, 24 when you pick first, but you never know. I mean, the NFL screwy. I mean, you can read mock drafts to your blue in the face, and some guy that's in the top 10 goes 25. And they're like, wow, how do you fall that far? Well, it's because mock drafters are different than the guys who are actually picking guys. And there'll be some guy that's in the 20s in the mock draft that goes to nine or 10 and we're sitting there like, Oh, did that team stretch? They may, they may not. So it's an exact science. I, I think we could get some foreknowledge of what they're doing. I agree with Joe. That room is so desolate right now. <laughs> Our running back. I mean, they have to go running back. Then he smells in there. Hey, Hey, where is everybody? <laughs> well, and I was reading too. Yeah, they could go veteran running back, like the old guy running back, like a Frank or Adrian Peterson. I, I still want that to happen. I, you know, I want a marquee guy, and I want them to pick up one of those seasoned vets. Well, I was reading somewhere saying, okay, who is available? Where say all three guys are gone, like we can't get a good running back. Yikes! You know, Harris is gone, and they said like Wayne Gallman, who I think played a little bit for the Giants last year technically is a top-rated running back out there in terms of free agency. So, yeah, I don't want to stretch and reach for a guy, but we need. it would be nice to have either Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, or uh, Javante Williams out there. 
there are a couple of good guys. Michael Carter's been listed as a good name from North Carolina. The kid from Ohio State, Trey Sermon, and uh, Chuba Hubbard from Oklahoma State have been mentioned. I'm not sure if his last three can come in and be your bellwether guy. And, you know, Paul and I talked about this a lot early last year. I'm not crazy about one guy running it 30 times a game. But you know how the Steelers roll. They pick one guy, they run him until he's falling apart. So, all right. Well, again, thanks for your patience, guys, as I was dealing with the other issue. Anything else you need to talk about the Steelers before we head to our next thing? I don't think so. All right. Well, hey, brief shows. Um, They're going to get a little bit, well, a lot more in-depth as we get right after the draft. And we'll go back to brief shows. And obviously, as the season goes, moves closer, we'll – have our four-hour weekly. Get back to that. Yeah, should be good. So, hey, thanks for checking out the Sewers Podcast. Listen to what you think. Thanks for dealing with our audio issues of last week. Trying to jam too much in. But, hey, we're in better shape now. (laughs) Life's good. All right, have a good one. Talk to you guys later. Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast based on the work from our book, Hope Interrupted, that I co-authored with my good friend Byron McCauley. Hey, Jennifer, you know, I'm looking forward to this podcast as much as I was looking forward to writing this book with you. We hope to interview some uh, high impact folks as well as have a little fun. We're going to cover stories of hope. To learn more about our podcast and our book, please visit www.hopeinterrupted.com.